Welcome to the Wild Podcast, your weekly dose of eco-education. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Roxy Rogan and founder of Wild Education. And today our guest on the show is wildlife photographer, Jason Savage. Welcome, Jason. Lovely to have you on the show. Hey guys, no, thanks for having me. So Jason, why don't you tell our listeners um, just a little bit about yourself. So who you are, what you do and where you're from. Alrighty, well, I'm a wildlife photographer and conservation photographer from Adelaide. Uh, so I do a lot of work internationally, trying to work with organisations to sort of just make photos and content for them. And then while I'm in Adelaide, I do a lot of, I do landscaping. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> complete opposite from... Uh, photography but I gotta fund it somehow yeah absolutely no you gotta pay the bills and and fund it absolutely exactly yeah exactly no it's all a hustle no that's awesome and tell me a little bit about how how did you get into conservation and how did you get into being a photographer and such a good one might I add thank you (laughs) I'll take a compliment no worries (laughs) I I would I started when I was little always had a passion for wildlife and then that sort of grew, yeah, when I was small, we had a lot of wildlife coming in. I was a part of Fauna Rescue, so we took a lot of wildlife in, nice. mostly birds. And then, yeah, mum and dad sort of nurtured my, my love for nature and wildlife as best they could. Mm. Uh, they got me a snake when I was eight years old. Oh, yeah. First. <laughs> so, yeah, she was really big and unfortunately passed away last year. Oh. Um. And then, yeah, from there, during school, I left school quite early, in year 10, uh, and started in the workforce, saved up a bit of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, mum, being doing the mum thing, she took me aside and said, all right, you've got a bit of money in the bank now, you've got to focus on house or car, like try and get something, <laughs> try and get ahead of the other kids mm-hmm. who are still at school. And, yeah, that didn't really appeal to me at all. Yep. So I went completely opposite to what she said and I looked into doing some volunteering and I was tossing up between Africa or Costa Rica mm-hmm. uh, with GVI, Global Vision, Global Vision International, and I ended up going to South Africa for five months. And then from there, I learned a lot about the wildlife, a lot about conservation there. I was just like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Mm. That's awesome. Tell me a little bit about those five months in South Africa because I've had a similar experience going to South Africa yeah. at a young age and spending time there. And um, a lot of people who might be listening who have also been to Africa or South Africa know that yeah. it takes a little bit of your heart. Like it's just an amazing uh, place. Everyone everyone you speak to that's been there, they just want to go back. It's mm. like, so, yeah, once you – that's what I did. <laughs> so I've lived in South Africa on and off for three and a half years. Wow. Uh, but, yeah, that first five months – First place we went to was it's called Venetia uh, in northern Limpopo, so right at the top of South Africa, and it was just completely wild. There was thirty six thousand hectares. Uh, we were monitoring lions, mm. and it took about half an hour just to get to the camp from the main gate. So you completely isolated, had to light fires to get hot water. Wow! And just sitting there at night time, you can hear you know, ground hyenas would come into the camp. Lions, elephants. The elephants are very angry there. They try to kill you all the time. Oh, great. At night time, they were a bit more calm, so that was good. And then, yeah, after that, I was hooked. Then we went to another property in Limpopo 
uh, Kurongwe, which is more touristy, mm-hmm. and they were monitoring all types of wildlife. There. Mm. They had elephants. Uh, they did the lions as well. And yeah, after that, I, just, I loved monitoring wildlife, and I was like, "This is where I want to be." And then found out that you can actually study yeah. to get qualified to be able to work as a or guide or in the wildlife mm. industry in South Africa. And I was like, as soon as I got home, started work, and I was saving up to get back again. Yeah. So did you ever end up going back and doing your like your courses to become a guide? Uh, yeah, I did a course with uh, Beijing Nature Training, mm-hmm. and it's just a ten week course, and I got my level one, so I was a um, qualified guide in South Africa. Very cool. <laughs> and then yeah, went back home again, um, saved up, and then went back and tried to do my walking safari course. And after that, I landed a, a job as a guide. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the pay is not the best over there. Yeah. And I ran out of money, so I had to come home again. Yeah. But it was, yeah, but that first trip that I went to South Africa, uh, you know, it was my, for my birthday. Mm. Uh, I got a, a nice Fuji, Fuji film camera. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, just started taking photos with that. And then, yeah, fell in love with it and then upgraded to uh, 70D Canon. Mm-hmm. And I had that for a few years and saved up more. And then now I'm on. What I'm using now. Oh. Yeah, especially in Africa, there's always something happening. Always. Yeah, always when you don't bring your camera, then something amazing ah. happens. So <laughs> you always have to have it with you. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're so you are quite self-taught then when it comes to photography. Uh yes, and and no. I did you know, try, a lot of trial and error, but uh, when I was working with the rhinos, there was people there that knew a lot about photography, so I was able to sort of lean on them and mm. uh, and now I'm meeting quite a few photographers and yeah it's all about always learning yeah bringing in the knowledge that they got because yeah. they're obviously very good at what they do so uh yeah I love it and it can be a very powerful sort of message to you know, get it get, get that message out there through photography mm. yeah so it kind of leads on to my next question so when it comes to photography when do you think, or is there a point where something is too graphic to photograph that you think will not have any benefit for people who see that image? Uh, no, I don't, I don't really think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is because you know, if it's really graphic, you know, it's, it's real. Yeah. It's a real thing. So I think people need to see that. You know, a lot of stuff is very watered down mm. at the moment. So it's sort of, it can be a bit of a shock to people and, can wake people up but it can also have negative effects so yeah it's a fine line but i do think yeah i think if it's real you know document it and yeah. let people know what's going on yeah i yeah that's interesting no, um yeah about being quite authentic and and showing people the harsh reality of a lot of situations um mm-hmm. so what would be something that you think throughout your um, career as a wildlife photographer is maybe one of the hardest things you had to photograph in terms of wildlife? Uh, well, I'm hope because I want to try and get into more conservation photography as well. Yeah. And storytelling because mm. that's a big part of photography. Uh, so I'm always looking for stories. But the biggest one was probably when I was in Sumatra. I was in North Sumatra working with uh, the Sumatra Ranger Project. So I was walking around with some ranger and you know them. Yeah, I love them. Yep, they're great. <laughs> Yeah, they do amazing work. And, uh, we all got to kind remember what village it was, and then just so happened that there was an orangutan in the garden, in or in the garden. It's like a fruit 
fruit, um, sort of little plantation. It's not big, massive plantation, just something that the villagers use for food. Mm. And yeah, he's gone to town on the fruits. So they called in uh, a team and they had to, he was really high up in the tree, that's sort of isolated into a tree, so he can't move around as much. And then there they darted him from the tree. And then eventually he gets sleepy and he has to pull out of the tree and they catch him in a net. Mm. And it was when they were checking it. He'd been shot a lot of times with uh, pellet guns, which is what a lot of the people over there used to protect their plantations. And, yeah, he had lots of holes in him. He wasn't in a great shape, but he had to be returned to the jungle. I think they said he was four kilometres away from the nearest wow. from the Losa. So he travelled a fair distance. Um, I guess that sort of shows that maybe because the jungle shrinking, that they need to find other avenues for food. Mm. But um, yeah, that was quite difficult just seeing him just laying there and you know, checking him. And he's like, "This is this is what really has to happen to make sure that the orangutans survive." Yeah. And then yeah, the other one was with the rhinos. We had to do dehorning. It wasn't really mm. brutal, but for me, it was. You know, I love I love those rhinos, and to see them losing their horn when they don't. I shouldn't do. They don't have to lose their horn. So we sort of we said, why is something so pointless, so necessary to try and save a species, particularly on privately owned land in South Africa? Um, that was yeah, that was really hard. I had quite a few tears because I was on the I was on the head making sure that their like little earmuff things stay in their ears. Oh. And, um, yeah, that was really really tough to see. Like it wasn't yeah, it didn't hurt the runners in any way. Yeah, but just from my perspective. And monitoring them all the time it was it was very difficult yeah wow and so um just for those listening who maybe don't quite understand um let's go back to the first um example that or that you gave the story that you told about the orangutan so maybe explain yeah. to people um why why was the orangutan coming so close to the people's um gardens and homes like why wasn't it in the jungle maybe explain explain that a little bit yeah for sure well uh, the Sumatran Ranger Project, they work in the buffer zone, which is like the zone from the jungle to basically agricultural land, mm-hmm. community land. So they operate in there, and we found quite a few orangutans sitting there on the side, and uh, one of the rangers was there, and he's like, when this used to be jungle, they, they know. they got good memories, so they know when the trees are fruiting. Mm. So they're all on the, right on the, on the boundary because they know there's fruit trees over there. Uh, Sumatra orangutan doesn't really go onto the ground either. So they've got tigers there. Yep. When they are when they are there. So mm. yeah, they're just sitting there just watching, waiting for their, their moment. So uh the biggest area there, the Losa, there's sort of basically when you're walking in the buffer zone you see there's rainforest and there's just nothing. It's mm. just palm oil plantations going right up to the to the edge of the jungle. So the orangutans they don't have enough food in the area. They have to, yeah, risk it, I guess. Yeah. And if they're a bit weaker or anything, a bit old, uh, they can't sort of compete with the other orangutans. They need to find food somewhere, so they just take that, take the risk now. Yeah, yeah. So, so happens, it, is, it happens quite a lot with mm. yeah orangutans getting into the fruit plantations. Yeah, that's sad because obviously you know they're just looking to survive and. Um, They've taken a lot of their habitat away, so they kind of don't have a huge amount of other options. Yeah. 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 It was a big shock scene. Like, remember standing on a hill, big, massive mountain, hear the jungle, and then 
like right to it. Every he's not even centimeter. He's just palm walk, just mm-hmm. switches straight away. And it was yeah, that was really crazy to see. Like you hear about it and you see the pictures and the videos, but actually seeing it with your own eyes, it's just like wow, <laughs> this is really happening. Yeah. Did it feel real or did it feel just like almost unbelievable when you were watching that particular thing happen? Uh, it's, yeah, it was unbelievable. Mm. It's so hard to actually put it into words. Yeah. Because like a lot of the, a lot of other places they got wildlife corridors so you can you know, make a move from uh, patch of forest to patch of forest, but there, there's, I don't think there's really much of it at all. There's just basically an island, so they're isolated mm. and they have to move through these plantations and through villages to get to other areas. So it sort of needs to be these little channels so they can open up to otherwise, yeah, it's just an isolated population. Yeah, that's crazy. And so what do you think, uh, what are some things people can do? So after they see, you know, a really powerful photo that you may have taken of, say, these orangutans or the rhinos being dehorned, What's something that people can do instead of just seeing a powerful photo and feeling, um, you know, all these emotions that come up with seeing such an incredible photo, how do you get people to take that next step to actually do something about it? Yes. A difficult question, I know. Yeah, obviously the number one thing is donating. Yeah. But I think, yeah, a lot of people are sort of not moving away from that, but for me personally, the best thing you can possibly do is to get out there, not like on the front line or anything, but go out there and see the area because then that money goes directly to communities. It goes, yeah, well, you know where your money's going really because there's always a little bit where you just donate and then you get a maybe an email saying thank you for your donation. Yeah. It doesn't say where it's going or anything. Yeah. Obviously, it's, hopefully it's going to the right thing. Mm. But, yeah, the best thing is to get out there. So there's a lot of – you can do just eco-tours – uh, especially the ones in Sumatra, you can go to Sumatra. They take you for a walk in in the Losa, which is you know, probably the most important habitat there in, in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. It's the last place where tigers, orangutans, elephants, and rhinos live in the one one area. And yeah, you can go through there, but then they'll also show you the the palmo and show you what is yeah. actually happening. So then, instead of just giving your money, you actually you learn and some things are more important than money and being able to get back and spread the word and say what you're doing and maybe other people will go. That's the biggest thing is learning and being able to experience it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, yeah, because I think um, I think maybe sometimes people's uh, hesitation with just donating is mm-hmm. sometimes depending on who you're donating to, might then might not be a huge amount of transparency within that business as to where that is going. Yeah. So you may just be paying for a huge amount of, admin overheads and then some is going to the cause um, yeah exactly obviously and yeah, admin is important for the yeah organization but people yeah they're not really donating for that they want to donate for the cause yeah but obviously it's it's all interconnected but yeah um yeah the best thing to do is go out there mm. but obviously if you can't then uh donating yeah doing your research that's the biggest thing just about to say i think donating is still super powerful and needed if anyone oh, yeah. in the conservation yeah. world knows that, you know, donating and funding is always a constant thing that's needed, but doing your research as to where that money is going is just a smart thing to do and you will learn yeah. as well when you're 
doing that independent research, you'll learn as to where the money is going. Yeah, but, always ask questions. Just keep just asking questions, and if there's that hesitation, then you can sort of be like, yeah, a little bit, <laughs> a bit yeah. nervous. But most people, yeah, they do. Mm. It is a whole whole business, and they need to keep keep functioning to be able to do the work that they do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So with all these powerful images that you take, and obviously they can be quite disturbing things that you have to see how do you as a wildlife photographer deal with that after and maybe you know people listening who might want to be a wildlife photographer but have hesitations as to if they could mentally cope with it what's maybe some advice you would give to someone out there yeah uh it is it is tough at times but i'm i personally i deal with it quite well like when i'm in the moment i'm in the moment then i sort of reflect on it after later on because yeah but it does affect you especially working with the rhinos constantly stressing about um yeah whether or not they wake up in the morning and they're still there uh it's like that constant stress was that got to me a lot uh sort of yeah it became my, my best friend so i didn't want anything to happen to him mm. so to yeah it's sort of probably uh in engulfed me a little bit too much i got very involved like i was like stressing and it's like a dog i need to know where yeah. the dog is i need to i need to know if it's okay you yeah. know it's just yeah out there all the time but um yeah coping with the some of the tough situations it is it is difficult everyone's different you just got to find your sort of avenue to reflect because that's important to reflect on what you do on but yeah when i take photos when i'm somewhere you've got to sort of not show that it's getting to you because a lot of people are like sort of click onto that so you just got to sort of just be yourself yeah just be in the moment read the situation and yeah always reflect later on yeah no that's great advice um to be in the moment i guess as well with uh shooting wildlife you have to be in the moment because everything's changing so quickly um yeah exactly it's fast paced sometimes yeah i bet is it has there ever been a moment where you've been shooting wildlife and you just have not gotten it because the animal that you're trying to cap, you know, uh, shoot is just moving way too fast. Or has there been those difficult times where you're like in the jungle or in the savannas and just like this is just not working? Mm-hmm. Like, have you had any of those moments? Uh, yeah, probably too many to too many. <laughs> I think that happens to most people. Yeah, you're just, yeah, so frustrated. Yeah, but um, yeah, obviously you get a lot of good ones and. Then, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of times when you just wish you had the you know, the right equipment, or you don't have time to act and just taking pictures. Then you look back and they're all dark, or oh. <laughs> or something like that. Or yes. It's just little things, and you just mm. get a bit frustrated with yourself. But especially in the jungle, jungle's hard because it's so so dark there. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, when you get the photo and it's you worked hard for it, it's very 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 rewarding yeah absolutely no your work is is seriously incredible i'd like to um ask you a little bit more about the work that you did with the rhinos so can you tell me what organization did you work with you said they were like your best mates at what kind of level of involvement did you have with them and maybe tell um the listeners maybe for people who don't know why are rhinos so important to africa and what's happening over there with the rhinos at the moment yeah, for sure. Well, I works it's called Wild Heart Conservation, so it's an international volunteer project. So we had volunteers coming in. I think it's called Wild 
uh, MPO now, mm-hmm. and they're in the northern part of South Africa. Um, and besides looking after the volunteers and taking them out on their drives, there's a run, little rhino monitors. So we're on quite a large reserve, um, and the rhinos move a lot. You need to make sure where they are. You need to be able to see if they're close to the fence, so you need to mm-hmm. go out there more. Or, so the monitoring part was really important, and then we had anti-poaching guys in as well. Mm-hmm. So you have to coincide with what they're doing. Always been communicating, and at the start it was, yeah, it was stressful. It was very stressful. So they still had their horns at the start. Yeah. And, yeah, we were getting poachers coming in, mostly on the weekends. Really? Uh, yeah, all the time they were coming on. And then it just got too much for the, the landowner, and he sort of had to make the decision to to do the dehorning, which is tough on him. Um, but after that, yeah, the word got out and we didn't really have as much. There still was some, but uh, there wasn't as much as what it was. But the monitoring side of things was, uh, it was very, yeah, it's very important to what's going on. So in, in my first week there, uh, I found poachers when I was by myself. Wow. What did you do? Uh, I, it was my first drive just completely by myself. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and the guys were like, oh, the uh, volunteer just left. Like, oh, don't worry. Don't worry about going out. And I was like, eh, I, I want to. I was like, let's do it. And we went out there, found the runners quite quite early on. Mm-hmm. And there was heaps of elephant tracks uh, quite close to one of the mountains. So I was like, I'm going to go up the mountain, sit there, and maybe I'll be able to see him from a distance. Yeah. And then, yeah, I sat there for a while and then all of a sudden I heard like some rocks moving. So I looked down and there was two blokes there just walking, uh, walking off the road and they were sort of in, uh, working clothes. I was like, ah, oh, probably work here. So I went to stand up and I was going to wave to them. So like, how's it going? And I was like, hey, I'm there. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. And I hid behind one of the rocks and just watched them and, you know, they went around the mountain and, uh, just, I messaged in because we use WhatsApp. Messaged said, uh, "Is there any workers out there today?" And they said no. And it was just like message asking questions like, "All right, this is real." <laughs> and um, then yeah, they disappeared. I tried to go up into the mountain to sort of follow them, and then they were in the mountain when I was there because I, I I smelled them. They smelled like cigarettes and campfire. Nice. And I was like, "All right, I'm not going any further." stand in the middle so they can't like, ambush me but they they started running so oh we went from nine in nine in the morning till four in the afternoon wow and i was the only person that saw them that day they were just we had trackers on them we had helicopters in the sky and then we were in front of them trying to cut them off and no one else saw them uh, they're just that well trained they're probably from mozambique i think wow wow and so wow you i mean it's that's insane because, like, a lot of rhino poachers shoot to kill. Like, if mm. like it's no no fun and games. Yeah, it's interesting there because in South African law, it's not really the poaching that gets you in trouble. It's the illegal firearms. That's what you get done for. Mm. So when they were there, I didn't see him. I didn't. One of them was carrying something, but I don't think it was. It wasn't a rifle. None of them had a rifle. So they reckon. On the neighbouring property, they hid the rifle there, and then there was a third guy that might have gone back to go right. and get that get the rifle. So I think we had a walkie-talkie, maybe, so mm. we can 
if they locate the virus, going to get them in. So you go in there, get them, and then leave. So wow. It's, yeah, it's it's a bit backwards because um, yeah, they're not really getting done for the poaching. It's more the legal firearms, <laughs> oh, which is the really big big thing there. And um, obviously the private rhino owners in South Africa, because there's national parks and there's a lot of privately mm. owned farms there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got to fund ants poaching and stuff all by them, all for themselves. Yeah. Which is quite tough on them. So there's a lot of uh, population runners on privately owned farms, mm. but they're more smaller, so they're easier, well, not easier, but it'd be better to protect yeah. and monitor them. So, yeah. Uh, and now they, yeah, they're going to try and be able to breed them up and then hopefully be able to get some more little baby runners out there. Oh, so cute. Um, maybe just mention to our listeners why are people poaching for rhino horn? What is the importance of it? Um, why do people want it? Uh, well, over in China and Vietnam and places like that, uh, they want the horn. It's believed to be, or well, it's meant to be in quite a lot of stuff there, like aphrodisiacs. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say that's the biggest one. <laughs> Um, but it's meant to cure like headaches and common colds and things like that. But it's also now more a a status symbol because they know how much it costs. And a lot of those places have got a rising middle class, so it's now becoming available to a lot more people. And in China, well, I've never been there, but I assume that there's there's lots of cars, and you can't really spend all your money on like a nice Ferrari or something there. So mm-hmm. what's something that you can show that you are worth a lot? Yeah. And yeah, they get rhino horn and they mix it with uh, other drugs or they just put it in the drink. And I don't really know what it, the belief is there, but it's more just, yeah, showing that you've got money. Yeah. And what's rhino horn made up of? Uh, it's a protein called uh, keratin. So it's the same as your fingernails and hair. So it's basically a big dreadlock <laughs> that they shape into the horn. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and it is, it is weird when you're cutting. And they got the chainsaw and they're cutting the horn, and it just smells like burning hair. Oh, nice. That's yeah. <laughs> it's just so crazy, especially when it um when you go to Africa and you see these majestic beings, and the horn is like the most obviously distinctive character of rhino. And yeah, exactly. I've seen as well like the rhinos with the little stubs left, you <laughs> know. Yeah, little tiny bits. And um, it just seems so wrong. But so from your experience, um, do you think it does work to deter the poachers to an extent uh, or not? Yeah. Yes and no. It depends yeah. on the on the each individual area. Yeah. Like on our property, it worked. But in the bigger scheme of things, like they're not going to come here. But they'll go somewhere else. We got, yeah, they just go to the next property. Yeah. Um, but it's all... Uh, so it's all, yeah, in the bigger scheme of things, like it's not stopping the situation, it's just moving it away from your population. So mm. you know, it works and it's a, a deterrent and you put that deterrent with other deterrents with monitoring, anti-poaching. Yeah. And then, yeah, your rhinos can be pretty safe, but then you also got to try and stop the bigger picture, like stop the other rhinos from being poached. Yeah. So yeah, you hear quite a lot of stories about, yeah, even... The little nubby bits are worth money, so they mm. and then yeah, you shoot them, and you don't need to. They they track rhino by their by their tracks. Yeah. So you don't know if it has a horn or not. So if it doesn't have a horn, they just 
shoot it anyway, so they don't make sure they don't have to track that one next time. Mm, it's so horrible. Oh, it's yeah, it's crazy. When I was in Africa last time, I was in a tent. And I was sitting in there, and then it's middle of the night, so I was half awake, half asleep, and I heard two gunshots. And I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, oh, it's probably hunters out there just doing their thing because there's a lot of hunting. Yeah. Uh, in South Africa. And then, yeah, a little bit later, just high beams on our tent, beeping the horns, like, get up. Rhinos have been shot. Oh, we got to go. And, yeah, them guys got away as well. Um, that was going to be intense like, to photograph, but unfortunately we had to go to Pretoria. I didn't want to. I was like, no, I'm staying. But. Yeah, I had to go back, but there was a rhino poached and it was seven months pregnant as well. So essentially there's two rhinos dead, but stats weren't the same one. Ugh. That is just insane. See, that's like, yeah, that's it's such a, a tough thing to deal with. In our last episode on the Wild Podcast, we talked about eco-anxiety and it's a relatively mm. new age term, but it what you're talking about, is like, you know, a lot of people could maybe relate to have done similar things as that anxiety around really wanting to help protect certain species of animals or the environment um, and having that anxiety as well. So, Yeah, it's a big problem. It affects everyone differently. Like, I'm the same. I I don't sleep as much anymore. I don't know if it's directly because of that, also because I didn't sleep when I was with the rhinos. So I just sort of maybe taken that on. But yeah. It's very, for me personally, it's quite difficult because I'm a landscaper here in Adelaide, so I'm completely away from yeah. what my passion is and what I want to do. Yeah. And I don't know how to make it turn it into doing it full time, which is a struggle. But um, yeah, and the, not really many of my friends know what I've done, so I can't really, I can't talk to many people about it. Yeah. So it does build up a little bit, but yeah, when you're away and you're doing stuff and you're doing what you love, then it's just, yeah, nothing else matters. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone's going to know your story now, Jason. <laughs> everyone's okay. going to know. Um, but, yeah, no, that's awesome. So what are some projects? Are you working on anything cool at the moment? I saw something about Bali maybe. <laughs> yeah, we just uh, – me and my friend uh, Reynard Kennedy, look him up on Instagram as well, good videographer. <laughs> we just got back from Bali. It was more – we did do some conservation work, but it was more um, just sort of blogging. Just we tried to do a road trip around the island mm. and explore some of the places where people don't really don't really go as much. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in Bali, it's just everyone goes to a little tiny little area. So we just tried to go, yeah, away. We went into the mountains, um, got to meet a lot of local people, and it was so different from a place where it's very busy. Um, a lot of the local people would seem not rude, but they just sort of seem very flat. Mm. You go up into the mountains or somewhere where there's less people, and they're just everyone's so friendly. They oh, really? Happy to see you. Yeah, we got invited into like people's little festival things that they were having. Oh, cool. And then, yeah, it's just sort of making content, making videos. Nice. So I want to get more into videography as well. So he's, yeah. he's teaching me a bit of that. Awesome, learning on the job. What's some? Yeah, yeah absolutely. What's some? Uh, just speaking of that, really. What's some advice or tips that you would give to someone if you know after they listen to this podcast, they're like, "That's it. I do want to be a wildlife photographer, a videographer, or you know, creating content to make an impact when it comes to wildlife mm-hmm. and conservation." 
what's some sort of tips that you would give, whether it be starting off what kind of equipment is great to use or, um, yeah, what's some advice you would give to people out there? Yeah, well, that's the, the beauty of it today is um, basically anyone can really be a photographer because you've got your, your phone. True. <laughs> There's a lot to start with that. Like the cameras in the phones are just getting absolutely insane. But that's always a good start. And then I do a lot of – I watch YouTube a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of tips. Like there's so many free classes on there pretty much. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and also doing uh, like photography trips with a lot of that now as well. Yeah. So you can actually – especially Africa, that's would be good because there's so much there to, to actually take photos of. And, uh, yeah, just – you know you want to do it, just invest – uh, learn as you go. It's it is it is difficult to sort of make your way in it, but it's a very it's a very re- rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a. Um, I think what we spoke about earlier is a great piece of advice. Is if you want to help with these things, I'm a total advocate as well. Is actually go to this place. Um, yeah. May, don't necessarily have to be as involved maybe as you were, but like still go, still volunteer. Um, yeah, because you're learning and yeah. you're going to get that good experience and you're going to get the obviously the photo opportunities as well. Yep. And you make good contacts out of it and a lot of these places, they got social media so you can say, hey, I want to learn photography and then they'll take your they'll take your content and they'll use it for what they're doing and you can help get their message out yeah. and hopefully get more people there. Exactly. Well, I think that's awesome and I love what you do. Um, how can people... Um, how can people follow you online? What's your what's your links? Uh, well, my Instagram is Jason Savage Photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't remember what my Facebook page is. <laughs> it's Jason Jason Savage Photo. Oh, cool. yeah. My, web, my website is um, yeah www.jasonsavagephoto.com.au. Uh, also, we, I got like a little filming project that I tried to start a couple of years ago. Yep. Um, we actually filmed in Bali. Filmed king cobras. Oh, wow. so that's that was intense. <laughs> Not a lot of people know there's actually king cobras in Bali. Yeah, but um, yeah, there's a big problem there with human wildlife conflict um, regarding especially king cobras because they build their nests mm-hmm. and they build it on big slopes and usually, well, in Bali, pretty much everything is farmland. So the farmers come into contact with them and they usually burn, kill the cobra and burn the nests. Oh. So instead now they are ringing an organisation there, Bali Reptile Rescue. Mm. They come out, they catch the female and take the eggs as well. So we feel now that's, uh, we call it the conservation front. The conservation front. Oh, I think I'm yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> so we're still trying to work on future projects there. There's always there's always projects on the go. Yeah. It's just actually making them happen. Yeah. Sort of save up. Yeah, it's, um Yes. The money, but I think <laughs> that's, yeah, I think it's awesome what you're doing. Um, so, yeah, definitely people who are listening and want to connect with Jason or look at his work, Jason Savage Photography on Instagram. Yeah, yep. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Send us a message as well and, yeah, happy to, happy to talk to you guys. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, thanks so much, Jason, for coming on the show. Love speaking with you and, yeah, chat soon. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to our channel and follow us on Instagram, wild underscore education. Thanks again and talk soon.